Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Today's podcast is on the June publication of Emergency Medicine Practice, which is on procedural sedation in the emergency department. Two of the three authors are joining us today to cover the entire issue, and it is jam-packed with information covering all things sedation and analgesia for both adults and pediatrics. It's a slightly longer podcast than usual, so take your time, listen carefully, and then go take your CME test and claim your four hours of continuing medical education. And if you don't have access to the publication, there's no better time than now. June is our birthday month, and you will get 25% off any publication to which you subscribe. That includes emergency medicine practice, pediatric emergency medicine practice, and the new urgent care publication, all available at ebmedicine.net by using the discount code BDAY22. And of course, all that information is available to you in the mobile app, so you can favorite this article and keep it there for rapid reference at the point of care. It's got so many great tables and figures and references. It really is a textbook chapter on procedural sedation and analgesia. So I can't wait for you to hear this podcast. Without any further ado, here are Drs. Maida and Kern. My name is Prayag Mehta. I'm an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And I'm Josh Kern. I'm a assistant professor of emergency medicine at UT Southwestern Dallas, and we're both at Parkland Hospital, mostly. Thank you both for joining us today on the podcast. Now, you two, along with Dr. Alexander Gwynn, are authors for the June issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, which is really a gigantic chapter on procedural sedation and analgesia in the emergency department. It's an amazing publication, just jam-packed with information. And today, we're going to try and pick out some highlights to talk about in our conversation. If you're listening and you have access, this is something you've got to go read. It is 22 pages of solid information about procedural sedation in the emergency department. But today, we're going to walk through it in pieces and pick out some of the pertinent highlights When we talk about procedural sedation and analgesia in the emergency departments, some of us old folks remember the days when we used to call this conscious sedation. Is this the same thing, just a change in terminology? Are we talking all things related to pain and sedation in the emergency department? Or what's the scope of the title procedural sedation and analgesia? Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because as recently as yesterday, I had a a junior resident still refer to procedural sedation as conscious sedation. So although it's an old term, it seems to be still floating around. It's interesting to me because the goal of procedural sedation, by definition, is to suppress a patient's level of consciousness. So I can see some implications medical legally with using the term conscious sedation and what the patient might expect from the actual sedation. So I no longer recommend using that. I believe procedural sedation and analgesia is a lot more encompassing of a term and more appropriate. And when we talk about sedation in the emergency department, there are levels that a patient can progress through in the spectrum of sedation. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. So I'm not sure if uh, your facility is similar to ours, but every year when we have to recredential for sedation privileges, we always get this pre-procedural sedation test. And there's a lot of questions that go through scenarios where patients are arousable to minimal stimuli, or you have to 
use uh, tactile stimuli. So we can go over the definitions um, and get you some of those answers for those questions. So sedation does fall on a spectrum. It, it, it's very difficult to predict specifically that you will be in one level over the other, and you should be adjusting your goals of sedation based off of the patient's condition, as well as the procedure that you're going to be performing. So minimal sedation is when the patient maintains a near normal level of alertness and responds normally to verbal commands. They may have some impaired coordination and cognitive function, but typically the ventilatory and cardiovascular functions are unaffected. As you move to moderate sedation, the patient does typically have a depressed level of consciousness and responds purposefully to verbal commands with or without light tactile stimulation. They may exhibit slurred speech and ptosis. The patient's airway remains patent without intervention. Ventilation is spontaneous and cardiovascular function is typically maintained near baseline. As we move to deep sedation, this is when the patient has a depressed level of consciousness in which they cannot be easily aroused. Sometimes they respond purposefully after repeated or painful stimulation. They may maintain independent ventilatory function but it may also be impaired and they may require assistance in maintaining a patent airway. Now, last on that spectrum is general anesthesia. This is when I think of OR surgical cases. The patient is unresponsive to all stimuli. They have absent airway protective reflexes and spontaneous ventilation is often impaired. These patients typically require assistance in maintaining a patent airway and invasive positive pressure ventilation is usually required due to depressed spontaneous ventilation. Yeah, this is an important spectrum to keep in mind when you are looking at your credentialing at your hospital. So as emergency physicians, we're intubating people and then inducing general anesthesia unless they're already somnolent or altered for some other reason. And so at the hospital where I worked years ago, I remember sitting down with an anesthesiologist and going over what it is we're supposed to be able to do in the emergency department. And they were making the case that we could do minimal and moderate sedation. And I said, that's great. Do you want me to call you every time I need to intubate a patient? And he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, because you're telling me I can't do deep sedation or general anesthesia. And that's exactly what I do every time I'm intubating someone. And he goes, oh, uh, no, no, we, we don't want that. I said, okay, great. Then, then let's talk about the full spectrum here. It is important to remember that sometimes people will say, oh, no, I'm, I'm not doing deep sedation. Just yesterday, I was putting in a fractured dislocation of an ankle, and we were inducing deep sedation. That was not going to be a pleasant procedure for that patient. So don't be shy of the terminology. Use the right word and make sure you're credentialed for that level. And if not, then fight that administrative battle and make sure that gets documented correctly for you with your hospital privileges. Yeah, actually, with our credentials now, we don't have to take a test. We do like a sim case. So it's more realistic, at least. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. I hadn't heard that before. That's an interesting way to, to mix it in there and make sure that you know what you're doing. <laughs> Maybe yeah. a little bit more high stress. But when we talk about emergency medicine practice articles, we do include a little section for pre-hospital care in this particular setting. Is there anything specific to our pre-hospital colleagues that would be helpful for them when we're talking about sedation and analgesia? Short answer, not really. So there really is a paucity of literature out there. There were two case series, one published in 2011 and an additional one that was published in 2015. One that used 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of IV etomidate to help facilitate obvious deformities and splinting of those deformities. But the number of patients involved in that case series was really low. 
the next case series evaluated the use of ketamine in pre-hospital transport. Unfortunately, only 27.8% of cases were documented of having full monitoring. So it was hard to really extrapolate adverse events due to the documentation provided in those cases. So at this time, no consensus recommendations can be provided for procedural sedation and analgesia in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah, and, and important to differentiate that we're talking about sedation and pain relief for someone with a fracture and injury. We're not talking about delirious patients or people who are high on drugs or intoxicated or altered for some other reason. Absolutely. Okay, so then the patient makes it to the ED. And now we're talking about our ED care and our assessment of the patient. We've got someone who requires sedation, say my guy from yesterday who has a fractured dislocation. What kinds of things do we need to pull away from our assessment to maybe develop a risk for this patient uh, for the procedure? Yeah, so generally we still use the ASA class score. There's one through six, really. Our hospital specifically wants us to consult anesthesia for One's over, I think, three, but there isn't much evidence to suggest there's any increased risk of adverse outcomes. But the ASA system is more of a physical assessment, medical assessment to make sure to see what kind of disease do they have? Are they on dialysis? Do they have severe COPD or they just have hypertension that's well controlled? And basically the risk increases as you go up in the ASA classification. Now, there's really no outcome-based data in the emergency department on this. It's mostly anesthesia. And so really what we need to be looking at on these patients is their vital signs, their mental status, their airway patency, and a good cardiopulmonary exam prior to uh, performing sedation. And when we're talking to the patient and trying to give them an idea of what their risk might be, there was an article by Dr. Sacchetti et al. that was quoted in the publication that said that for cases involving moderate, deep, and general anesthesia, complication rates were 2.6% for moderate sedation, 6.3% for deep sedation, and 40% for those involving general anesthesia. Is that the, the commonly accepted percentage rate? I'm supposed to be quoting the patient? I don't think you need to quote this to the patients. We just decided to include this in the article because this was a pretty big study and general anesthesia is not something we want in the emergency department for these kind of, for procedural sedation. I think 6.3% is somewhat reasonable, but most of these complications were all mostly just hypoxia and they're all handled perfectly well by the emergency physicians. There was no real other adverse events really. It's common to get some hypoxia when you're trying to perform deep sedation. It's easily fixed by a jaw thrust maneuver, an oral or nasal pharyngeal airway, or just a little bit bag valve mask uh, ventilation. So I don't think we need to quote these numbers to the patients before sed procedural sedation, but it's just something to consider that there obviously is an increased risk of some complications from procedural sedation. We should be discussing that. You could end up on a ventilator or these are just very um, extreme circumstances and doesn't occur very often. Yeah, so that's a very good point, actually, is the, the complications listed in this Sacchetti article are really things that we think about as maybe minor 
issues. So any interventions right. in that scenario, whenever I'm filling out my procedural sedation note after, and it says, were there any complications? In my mind, I think of a complication <laughs> as I had to do CPR. I had to intubate the patient or the patient died. But really, that's not what we're talking about here. When we say 2.6% had a complication, it could be something as simple as I had to do a jaw thrust for 10 seconds, or they dipped their oxygenation below 90% for 10 seconds, and then we did a jaw thrust and it came right back up or something of that sort. And the general anesthesia in the article was unintentional general anesthesia. So I intended to do moderate to deep sedation and we just overshot and got into general and I had to intubate this patient. So I, I get it. That's good to keep in mind and, and glad to hear that's not something I have to quote to the patient. Mm -hmm. There is an excellent table in the article. Table one is a checklist of all the equipment necessary. And we don't necessarily have to walk our way through that equipment list. But if you have access to the article, I definitely want you to go check that out. If you're in a hospital that is small or a critical access hospital and you're wondering what you need in order to do this safely, I found this table actually to be quite useful. And we'll get to this actually a little bit later, but lots of people try and undergo this without capnography, but that's on the list as a tool and a critical tool, I think. But just beyond that was a discussion of something called the Larson Maneuver in this figure, figure two of the article. And this was specifically referencing a maneuver you could do with a patient who develops laryngospasm during a sedation. Tell me more about this. So essentially, the Larson maneuver was developed by anesthesiologists just based off of his experience. And it's basically called the laryngospasm notch pressure. And he found it to, this anesthesiologist, Dr. Larson, found it to actually rapidly reverse the condition. It's essentially a jaw thrust where you apply pressure with your fingertips to the area behind the mastoid process and the ramus of the mandible and the base of the skull. I've actually never done it before. I usually just perform a jaw thrust, but I've never actually seen someone with laryngospasm. So there's not much more data on this th that we could find or reviews or any studies. So this is just one anesthesiologist's way of reversing laryngospasm. Yeah, it appears to be a modified jaw thrust that is proposed by an anesthesiologist to help combat laryngospasm. It's pretty cool, really. I like the idea of it. Hopefully it actually does work. And so, if, again, if you have access to the issue, it's figure two on page four. It's a jaw thrust and then taking a, a finger and pushing right at the angle, the mandible deep into the soft tissues there, which I find a fascinating concept for a method to reduce laryngospasm. But if you have access to it, again, page four, I found that to be a little, an interesting thing. I have to put that in my back pocket and, and try it if I ever come across that scenario with the patient. When we're talking about the techniques for procedural sedation, so there are some guidelines from ASEP and the American Academy of Pediatrics if you're sedating children. Is there good data that helps us decide, do we need a, another physician in the room to be providing the sedation while we're doing the procedure or that it's adequately safe for one person to do both? Where are we on that data? So based off of the ASEP guidelines, they recommended as a level B recommendation. So the actual data suggests that you don't need two physicians in the room at the same time. Generally, especially at our facility, we require to have two attending physicians, one performing the procedure and one performing the procedural sedation. You only really need one physician in the room to do the procedure and then have someone that's ACLS 
trained, can monitor the respiratory status, can watch the monitor and essentially monitor the patient to see if there's any complications, if they're retaining CO2, they're becoming hypoxic, becoming apneic. And then you can, as the physician can stop the procedure and focus on the patient and their respiratory status. So there's a lot of rural emergency departments where you only have one physician at a time. I think it's completely reasonable to do it without another physician there. I mean, you really have no option. I've worked at places like that before. In a big emergency department where you have multiple physicians on, on at the same time, I think that the safest thing to do would have two physicians, but you don't need to. I think it takes away from treating other patients and it's a complicated situation, but I, I, in the end, I think that you don't need a second physician. Good. Yeah. In the facility where I currently work, we're a community academic setting. So we've got some residency training programs, but not one in emergency medicine. And we frequently find ourselves exceedingly busy and not having another physician to come and assist in a procedure. So we do single physician sedation all the time. Now, if you're listening to this, we are not talking about one person in the room. We're talking about one physician in the room. So, uh, for example, when we do this at my hospital, there's a, a physician, a respiratory therapist, a ACLS and trauma-trained nurse, and then maybe some students and some other personnel and techs who are assisting with whatever the procedure is. So there's a multitude of people in the room. There may be only one physician. That would be me in this case, but it's not one person. That's the important differentiation. And good to hear that there's evidence that it's still safe to do with one, one physician. What about fasting? Now, anesthesia is very focused on empty stomachs and making sure that the person hasn't had anything to eat or drink. Where are we on that when it comes to sedation as opposed to prolonged general anesthesia like our anesthesia colleagues have to deal with in the OR? So in the world of overcrowding and admit holds, it's still mind-boggling to me that this is an issue that we have to fight as emergency providers. Currently, the ASA recommends a period of two hours after ingestion of clear liquids, four hours after breast milk, and six hours after solids. And this is typically the guidelines that most hospitals use. The interesting part about these guidelines are they were based on expert consensus and extrapolated data in patients that received general anesthesia. So it's hard to apply that to patients receiving procedural sedation in the emergency department. There have actually been numerous studies regarding pre-procedural fasting for PSA, and none have demonstrated increased rates of serious adverse events with decreased fasting times. In 2021, there was a retrospective review of around 2,600 pediatric patients who required procedural sedation for orthopedic interventions. And among the primary outcomes were length of stay as well as adverse events. What they ended up finding was that there was a statistically significant difference in the length of stay for patients that adhere to the ASA guidelines, and it resulted ultimately in an 80-minute longer length of stay, but not a statistically significant amount of adverse events. So this is hospital-dependent, and it's a battle that you might need to start fighting with your admins because there seems to be a lot of literature that supports us not needing to use the ASA guidelines and wait based off of the last meal for procedural sedation. Good. Yeah, that's very helpful. So not necessarily relevant to us in the emergency department when we're doing sedation as opposed to prolonged general anesthesia, but still something you've got to take a look at your hospital protocols to define uh, and then maybe a battle you have to fight on the administrative side. 
when it comes to equipment. So let's talk about capnography. That's one of the things that seems to be the most helpful when you're looking at monitoring patients. But again, when we're talking about our rural colleagues who may not have access to equipment, what is it that capnography is adding in this kind of setting? And how is it different than, say, just continuous pulse oximetry? So capnography is just a simple way to monitor the patient's respiratory status and especially monitoring if they have any respiratory depression. It continuously measures the highest value of the carbon dioxide ex exhaled with each breath and it displays it on the monitor as a waveform. So it, it can tell you if they're, you know, not breathing enough and their entitled CO2 is increasing. It could be uh, low or declining significantly, which can actually show that you have decreased minute ventilation and then you start becoming hypoxic. Now, the controversy here is going to be if you have uh, oxygen supplementation and no capnography. So if you're administering oxygen without any capnography, you're preventing the hypoxia that would normally warn you of the patient's respiratory depression. We recommend that you don't use oxygen supplementation if you don't have capnography, because while you're doing the procedure, you're not really able to monitor the, re the patient's respiratory depression as well. And you're relying on that monitor to show you that they're hypoxic. And so if you don't have capnography to warn you that their end tidal CO2 is rising and they're becoming apneic or they're having some sort of respiratory depression, you need to not use the oxygen supplementation. There's not a lot of uh, studies to suggest this, but there was an observational study. Most of these are while a patient is on supplemental oxygen and actually the physicians don't respond fast enough and identify the respiratory depression without capnography if they just on pulse oximetry or supplemental oxygen. And ASEP recommends capnography if you have it. If you don't have capnography, we recommend just monitoring on the pulse oximeter and not with supplemental oxygen. Yeah, I totally agree. I find it to be exceptionally helpful. And uh, if I can summarize to make sure I get this right in my own brain, the, the physiology of this is that if you're on supplemental oxygen and you're hyperoxygenating someone and then they stop breathing, they could go apneic for minutes, six to 10 in a normal healthy person before their pulse oximetry reading starts to dip. And you would have no idea that they had gone apneic unless you were closely monitoring their breathing. In a setting of sedation, it may not be apnea, it could just be hypoventilation. They're not moving much mm -hmm. air, their breathing's inadequate, but you're still not going to know it because their pulse oximetry will take several minutes to be affected. Yet, if you have capnography, you would detect that almost immediately and be able to intervene before the patient becomes hypoxic and perhaps gets oversedate or you overshoot. And so it's a, a method of determining immediately that something's going on and intervening before it becomes a problem, as opposed to waiting till they're hypoxic when now you already have the problem. And so if you have it, I definitely think it's an excellent tool. If you don't have it, work towards getting it. It's really becoming quite ubiquitous in most emergency departments nowadays. And it's not that hard to interpret, really. I, th I find it very, very helpful. When we're going to undertake sedation in a patient, there are commonly painful scenarios, reasons why we're doing this. We're reducing joints or performing procedures that are exceptionally painful. And there are some pre-procedural medications we sometimes give people. And so, for example, 
Let's take this patient with the fractured dislocation of their ankle from last night, having a severe amount of pain, and I'm thinking, I need to sedate this person to get this joint in place. Is it okay to give them pain meds before we start? A dose of opioids, is that going to increase their risk? Is there any literature to help us make that decision? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I think majority of providers would treat that patient as soon as they saw them with an opioid to try to help ease their pain in, in, for them to be able to get imaging, possibly after imaging, while you're waiting on consultants or setting up for procedural sedation. So it's a common issue that we deal with in that we treat our patient's pain, but we have to keep that in mind when we're considering procedural sedation. So there is a predictably increased risk for complications in patients that receive pre-procedural opioids. In a prospective study, patients that received pre-procedural opioids had a higher odd of oxygen desaturation, vomiting, and requirement for positive pressure ventilation compared to those who did not. What we found was that it really comes down to the timing of when those opioids were given. So the most frequently utilized PSA agent in that cohort was ketamine, followed by ketamine and propofol, or also known as ketofol, as well as propofol and fentanyl. Those who received opioids within 30 minutes of any of those forms of procedural sedation had approximately 13.8% risk of desaturation and 12% rate of vomiting. And if the patients waited about 90 minutes between receiving op opioids and getting procedural sedation, that rate of adverse events decreased by about half. So ASEP officially recommends trying to delay procedural sedation if feasible. Yeah, after the peak effect of the opioid, essentially. So based off the half-life of the opioid, so fentanyl has a very short half-life. We want to wait for that effect to wear off before we actually proceed with procedural sedation. So if you're using morphine per se for pain or Dilaudid, whereas a little bit longer half-life, you want to wait a little bit longer than you would for fentanyl before you start procedural sedation. So I, I would urge you to choose your opioid based off of what you anticipate the pa uh, patient receiving for procedural sedation. If you could consider using something like fentanyl that has a shorter half-life, you might be better served than using something like morphine or Dilaudid if you plan on procedurally sedating the patient within 30 minutes. Good. So if I'm going to perform this procedure pretty quickly, maybe pick something with a shorter half-life so that there's not a lot of overlap between the agent and my sedative. And if I'm going to have to wait, maybe the patient needs a bunch of CTs and a bunch of other tests before I can get around to reducing this ankle, I could use something longer acting and still be okay by the time I have to circle back and do my sedation because the, the peak effect has already passed. That sounds right. Good. And then when we're talking about sedatives, our GI colleagues, for example, are always mixing fentanyl and Versed for sedation. And when we talk about combining benzodiazepines or other sedatives and then procedural sedation, what's the data behind the safety of that? Am I going to increase the risk for my patient doing that as well? Yeah, so most of the literature out there in the emergency department for procedural sedation is related to sedatives and the use of ketamine for procedural sedation. And in adults, there has been shown to be some benefit of using benzodiazepines or sedatives in conjunction with procedural sedation. So there was a 2019 double-blind randomized controlled trial that compared the use of midazolam, Haldol, or a placebo that was administered approximately 60 seconds prior to ketamine. 
And when they looked at five minutes, 15 minutes, and 30 minutes later, they observed a decrease in the incidence of agitation around 30 to 40% in patients that did receive midazolam or haloperidol compared to placebo. There was an increase in recovery time of approximately 17 minutes and 32 minutes with the use of midazolam and haloperidol. So ASEP guidelines on ketamine use in procedural sedation, pre-procedural administration of benzodiazepine is described as reasonable but non-mandatory. Okay. So the more agents we're putting into this cocktail, the higher the complication rate. And we still have to be careful, but it's not contraindicated. If it's necessary, it's still possible to use. Absolutely. Especially in adult patients, there really isn't a lot of literature out there for pediatric patients. So I would be a little bit more cautious in using those agents with pediatric patients. Good. All right, so let's talk about anticholinergics. There is this mantra out there that if you're going to give somebody ketamine, that it causes a lot of salivation and a lot of just uh, fluid in the airway, and we have to dry that out. And so we have to pre-medicate somebody with some atropine or glycopyrrolate. What's the data behind that? Is that real? Is that a myth? Where are we on that? So there's not a lot of literature out there that really supports the use of atropine and glycopyrrolate nowadays. So it is an old school technique that we do administer glycopyrrolate or atropine. If you're going to choose one, the literature does support the use of atropine over glycopyrrolate, but there really isn't a lot of data to support a tangible benefit. And the literature is not supportive of using anticholinergic prophylaxis unless the patients have an impaired ability to mobilize secretions. Yeah, I remember when I was in residency at the Children's Hospital, we used to use glycopyrrolate all the time. Now, I, had, I don't use it anymore specifically due to these studies. Unlike other emergency medicine practice articles, which typically only cover adult topics, you covered a lot of pediatric-related information in this particular uh, article as well. So it's true anticholinergics. I think there's a lot more of that mantra in pediatrics, but it's good to hear that's not necessary really that there's not a whole lot of evidence that those are actually necessary in pediatrics or really in the adult population. Yeah, a lot of the big well-done studies were done in pediatrics regarding procedural sedation. So we felt like it was important to include these studies in, the, in this article. Excellent. All right, so what about antiemetics? When we're talking about our sedatives, some of these do induce nausea, and is there any benefit to maybe giving them a dose of something before we start the procedure? Yeah, I feel like there is a benefit. A lot of the studies that are out there did evaluate ketamine-associated vomiting. There are some incidents listed as low as 3.8% and as high as 28.4%. And so there's some literature that suggests a mild benefit of using ondansetron parenterally during procedural sedations in which ketamine is used. In a trial published in 2020, co-administration of IM ondansetron reduced the rate of ketamine-associated vomiting from 30.7% to 14.3%, so greater than 50% reduction. So I would suggest using either IV or IM ondansetron at the same time as you're going to administer ketamine. And is it primarily a ketamine effect? Was this seen in any other medications? It's mainly during intramuscular ketamine use. Intramuscular ketamine has a higher rate of post-procedural vomiting than even intravenous ketamine. Okay. There is a fantastic table 
on page 11, which summarizes all of the routinely available agents in the emergency department, tells you the name of the agent, the standard dosing, both in adult and pediatric patients, the time of onset, the duration of the medication, and then a lot of the advantages and the disadvantages of those specific agents, which I find to be completely fantastic. By the time this podcast gets published, hopefully there'll be a blog post with this table for all of our FOMED readers on the blog. For everyone else, this is an outstanding table. And along with the rest of the article, it's available in the mobile app. So it's a great pocket reference to have and to look at before you're about to undertake sedation with a patient. Let's talk about some of these medications and what we know about them. So starting with fentanyl for sedation, are there specific disadvantages to using fentanyl that we need to worry about? Or is this kind of a rare event? What do we know about that medication? Well, first of all, fentanyl shouldn't be used as a, a solo agent in procedural sedation. It's usually used in the combination with other medications. Fentanyl has a rapid onset, it's short acting. It doesn't really cause any hypotension like other opioids like morphine or Dilaudid. And the reason why we don't use it as a solo agent is because it really only has analgesic properties. It doesn't really have sedative properties or amnesic properties. And so I wouldn't recommend using fentanyl as a solo agent. And there is described also with fentanyl, this chest wall rigidity that can occur. Mm -hmm. Is that something that can occur with routine doses, something we need to worry about in the ED? Unless you're giving very high doses, greater than three to five micrograms per kilogram intravenously, you shouldn't really worry about it. I personally have never seen a case of chest wall rigidity. Okay. There's not a lot of data on how to combat chest wall rigidity. There's some case studies and also one in neonates of, I think, 89 neonates were Eight of them developed chest wall rigidity and all of them were reversed with naloxone. Again, there's some case reports of reversal of chest wall rigidity with naloxone, but there's no great studies to suggest that that does work. Just the case reports in this one with the unaids. Yeah. So overall associated with much higher doses of fentanyl, usually you're using 0.5 to one microgram per kilogram. And we're seeing this in patients that are receiving three to five micrograms per kilogram. So approximately three to five times the typical dose. And then there is remifentanil. Now, this is a medication that may not be available to everyone, but this is structurally similar to fentanyl, just much shorter acting. Is that right? Yeah, it's structurally similar to fentanyl. The problem with remifentanil is, first of all, it's, yeah, it's not available in most emergency departments. It's not available in ours. It's actually given as an infusion. It's not given in, in boluses uh -huh. like we would normally get for fentanyl or the other procedural sedation agents. However, you can use it in patients with liver dysfunction or renal failure because its elimination is actually independent of hepatic or renal function. And actually there's been a systemic review of 10 studies. Three of them were performed in the ER. Two of these 10 studies actually involved emergency physicians. And these studies demonstrate that when remifentanil was combined with propofol, that it resulted in faster recovery and there were no complications. So this is something I think in the future, possibly that could be used in the emergency department. Uh, I don't think it's used in many places, but it's something I think uh, the future development, this may be a good drug for us to use in the future. Yeah, having to give it as an infusion is probably going to be limiting in this kind of setting for yes. sure. 
Okay, so midazolam as a sedative, any benefits to this particular agent? And obviously, we're going to be using this in combination with things. So what do we need to worry about with this drug? Essentially, just respiratory depression, giving too much. The normal dose is 0.05 to 0.1 mix per kg intravenously. As a rapid onset, it has a short duration, usually up to one to two hours. You can give it a lot of different routes intranasally, intravenously, intramuscularly, but giving midazolam with opioids is usually what we used to do for what we call moderate sedation in the past. And then nitrous oxide, this is one we don't have at my hospital, but this is still an option, especially in a pediatric population. Is that, does it tend to be used more in peds than in adults? Yeah, it's mostly used in pediatric population. We don't have this at our hospital either, but I actually have a lot of experience using it. Did a rotation in residency in New Zealand, and we used it for every procedure. And so it really only causes minimal sedation. Your ventilatory response is normal. You're not having getting any respiratory depression, and it's really rapid onset. It's on and off fast, but you just have to be cautious if kids have a middle ear effusion, it can actually cause expansion of that and cause TM perforations and cause mm -hmm. pneumothoraces. So this is just something to watch out for with nitrous oxide. And the sedation level you get from nitrous is enough to do some painful procedures, some pretty decent procedures? Yeah, I, th I think it would be, I mean, I think you can combine it with a little bit of anxiolysis too, with the benzodiazepine. But, you know, if you're going to do a big procedure, such as a shoulder reduction, I, I don't think it's going to be the ideal agent. All right, let's talk about propofol. So this is something increasingly available in many emergency departments. It's short acting. It, its onset is very quick and it doesn't cause vomiting, right? So it, it seems like a pretty ideal agent. Or what do we think about propofol? Propofol is definitely an ideal agent. Actually, I think ketofol is the best agent, but we'll get to that in a second. But propofol is something I've been using for years. Just like you said, it's rapid on, rapid off. It, it actually works as an anti-medic. The issues with it is that it can cause hypotension. You'll want to be cautious of patients who are volume depleted, elderly patients. If you give too much, it can cause respiratory depression. But given that it's a very short acting drug, a lot of times you, you don't have to intubate these patients if they have a significant respiratory depression because you can back valve, uh, use back valve mask or a nasal pharyngeal airway because this is such a short duration of action. And then ketamine, also well-versed in the emergency department. So again, rapid onset and the duration's a little bit longer than something you would see from say propofol, but does significantly preserve airway reflexes and does maybe come with some emergence phenomenon. And as we discussed earlier, some vomiting. So on the spectrum of agents, this is a pretty good one to choose as well. Yeah, I think ketamine is a great option. Children is the predominant age group that we use this in as a solo agent. There is some data that suggests that children under the age of two have a higher risk of laryngospasm and apnea. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, below three months, you really shouldn't use ketamine because you have a much, much higher risk of laryngospasm and apnea. And that's really the only contraindication to ketamine. There's Ketamine's been marred with, can't use it in head trauma, can't use it in intraocular trauma, 
There's really no evidence to suggest that it increases intraocular pressure or intracranial pressure. It does increase your blood pressure, but it has not shown any increased risk of myocardial infarction. And so ketamine, you can use in almost every wound. I'd also add a caution for utilization of ketamine in patients with certain mental health conditions such as schizophrenia. Due to some of the incidents of emergence phenomenon, it may exacerbate psychosis or result in prolonged psychosis in these patients. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, you mentioned earlier ketofol, which is the combination of ketamine and propofol. This is a one-to-one -one mixture of each of these agents. And tell me what the advantage is of mixing the two as opposed to using just one or the other. So they theoretically complement each other's weaknesses. So ketamine induces dissociative sedation, has innate analgesic properties, and also has cardiorespiratory stability. And in contrast, propofol is a potent sedative that, that does not have any analgesic effects and a rapid onset and also anti-emetic properties, whereas ketamine could cause vomiting. So they essentially offset each other. And so generally we give it in a one-to-one -one ratio, but there has been described one-to-two, one-to-three, one-to-four ratios. Generally you give a 0.5 milligrams per kilogram IV of ketamine and then a 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of propofol, and then you redose with propofol, not ketamine. And the evidence suggests that the adverse events from using ketofol are very low compared to other agency, including propofol alone or ketamine alone. And so this is actually my go-to, my go-to drugs for procedural sedation. Now, I think just to clear my own experience, I think it works really well and you have less respiratory depression, less hypotension. But the data in, with ketofol in children is very limited. And actually, in a study of like almost 6,300 pediatric patients, when compared to ketamine alone, ketofol actually caused a fourfold increased risk of serious adverse events. So I recommend it in adults, but not children. Hmm. So the ideal patient, say, if we had the choice between propofol, ketamine, or the combination of the two, you mentioned this has become your go-to drug, meaning first line, you would pick ketofol just to avoid all of the disadvantages of propofol uh, and or ketamine. That means someone we're concerned about lowering blood pressure or someone we might be concerned about vomiting in or someone even we might be concerned about an emergence phenomenon, the, the propofol might offset some of that emergence phenomenon. We don't have to worry about medicating post-procedurally with benzos. And the duration effect is maybe slightly shorter than ketamine alone because we're giving a lower dose. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So the, the duration is going to be a little bit longer than propofol alone, but a little bit shorter than ketamine alone. So about 10 to 15 minutes duration. Good. Now, I haven't tried this myself, but when you're administering this, you're, I'm assuming you've got them in different syringes. You're giving the ketamine first, and then you've got propofol. You give the initial dose, and then if you need more, you mentioned subsequent doses are, are all propofol from there on. Yes. Yeah. I, I usually keep them in separate syringes, and I administer the ketamine first, and then I administer, administer the propofol, and then subsequent aliquots of propofol. And when you talked about uh, the, the table mentions a one-to-one -one mixture, but you said some have even advocated for one-to-two or one-to-four, that, that higher amount would be the propofol quantity, not, not the ketamine. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be one ketamine for propofol. I've, never, I've only used the one-to-one -one ratio, and I think it works great, but there are studies that suggest that the one-to-two, one-to-three, one-to-four can 
can be effective. Good. Okay, and then the last agent on the table is Atomidate, something I used to use actually all the time before we had propofol available to us in the emergency department. So tell me about the advantages and disadvantages of this drug for sedation. Yeah, I used to use Atomidate all the time when my hospital wouldn't let me use propofol. So Atomidate is very rapid onset. It's very short. It's hemodynamically stable. It doesn't cause a lot of hypotension. The issue with Atomidate and the studies and what I've found is the myoclonus rate. So if you're trying to reduce a shoulder or a hip, it's an elbow, the myoclonus can really inhibit your procedural success rate. So some studies suggest 20 to 40% rate of myoclonus. But in general, if you want to perform a rapid procedure in someone who's hypotensive or needs a cardioversion, Atomidate is a great medication for that because of the rapid onset and the hemodynamic profile. Yeah, that seemed to be the the limiting factor for me. And the reason why I eventually just converted to propofol when it was available was we were frequently doing joint reductions and manipulation that required the patient to relax. And that would get the opposite effect from giving a dose of Atomidate. And it was far more common than I would have anticipated. And so it, it just became problematic and was preventing me from actually being able to get my procedure done. So that myoclonus is definitely very, very prevalent. Okay, and then when we have all of these medications and we're going to be administering them, it's helpful to have reversal agents available. Naloxone, of course, if they've received any kind of opioid, especially pre-procedural, always good to have around. Flamazenil, I guess if you're giving a benzodiazepine and you overshoot, is that the idea of having this drug available? That way you can try and reverse it without having to secure someone's airway or something of that sort? Is that the idea? Yeah, so Noxone is, I mean, we use it commonly in the emergency department for other reasons, such as opioid overdoses. But es essentially, Noxone is used only if you're having respiratory depression and you don't really need to have a complete reversal of, of the opioid effect because you want to still complete the procedure without having to resedate the patient. And so you just want to give enough to reverse the respiratory depression. And there's no study suggesting that the dose to give, I mean, you can start from 0 0.04 uh, milligrams IV to 0.2, but you don't want to give a lot and completely reverse the sedation. Good. The flumazenil, now I've used it before, but due to its profile and the risk of, of causing seizures, especially in benzodiazepine dependent patients or patients who take tricyclic antidepressants or patients with history of seizures, it's not r routinely recommended for reversal. I would recommend just you know, using your respiratory measures such as back valve mask jaw thrust, oral and nasopharyngeal airways for patients that you get benzodiazepines for. If you do decide to end up using that medication, you need to know that it is dosed every one to two minutes. So if you're giving 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams, you need to know that it's very short acting and that you'll have to redose or you'll have to at least pull about four to five doses worth of medication because it is Q1 to two minute administration. Yeah, I'd say in our emergency department, the mantra has been stay far, far away from flumazenil. Although I have used it, when I do use it, I am very closely monitoring my nursing colleagues as they're drawing it up. And we heavily discuss how much they're going to give before they push it. And then the concern there is always I'm going to take someone who is not benzo naive, someone who's been on benzos for a long time, maybe overdosed or, or maybe I've given too much. And I'm going to throw them into full withdrawal and they're going to go to Nystatus epilepticus and we're going to have to 
put them on propofol, sedatum, and intubatum. And so we have that discussion ahead of time, and then we give it in exceedingly small doses, titratable just enough to get them to where we're comfortable with their respiratory status. And I've had good success with that, but that's just a lot of effort. If you're not in a scenario where you're willing to put forth that much time and effort into this one drug and agent, better to just avoid it than to actually make a, a medication administration error here. Unlike the opioid withdrawal where they wake up and are exceedingly uncomfortable and vomiting everywhere, the severe withdrawal from benzodiazepines is going to be a lot nastier. <laughs> so not something you want to experience. There is a great section on special populations in the article. We spent a lot of time talking about pediatrics. Is there anything specific that wasn't covered in the previous sections related to children that we need to know? I somewhat talked about before where the kids that are less than two years old have an increased risk of adverse respiratory events, but there's also a newer study in 2021 that suggests that's not the case from 13 months to two years compared to older children. The only other thing I'd like to point out is that it's it's more common for them to pass to a deeper unintended level of sedation than adults. And so you just want to be prepared for that. Hmm. Yeah. And I would echo Dr. Kern's earlier statement that I actually work at Children's Medical Center and ketamine is the agent of choice. So if you are in an ED and, and you're by yourself and you do have to perform a procedure on a patient and need sedation, I would recommend ketamine as the, the agent of choice. And are you routinely pre-medicating them with ondansetron before you start your ketamine? We do, yes. Good. Now, I'm curious, when you're giving the ketamine IM, are you just mixing the ondansetron or giving it to them orally, giving it to them IM, starting an IV for this? What's your go-to agent or method so, for delivery? So the literature would support using IM or IV ondansetron um, in certain incidents and depending on the age of the patient and their tolerance, we do consider using a, an oral dissolving tablet or liquid ondansetron that's available at pediatric hospitals. But ideally, you'd want to use it IM or IV. All right, so I'm going to put your feet to the fire. My five-year-old falls over, cuts his forehead, is going to need sedation to, to, to sew this up, and I bring him to your emergency department. What's your go-to? You're going to give him IM ondansetron and then ketamine or... For your kid, a five-year-old, I would actually place an IV. I would give them IV on Dancetron and IV ketamine. And I think that would be the safest option. Okay. I would agree with that. All right. Fair enough. Okay. And then pregnant patients, anything specific to them uh, that's different than the rest of our adult population? And the main thing is the physiologic changes in pregnant women. You get a decrease in blood pressure due to the aortic aortocaval compression due to the gravid uterus. They're also at more risk, higher risk for difficult intubation due to the mucosa of their upper respiratory tract becoming more vascular and edematous. It can increase risk for swelling and airway bleeding. And they also have an increased risk of reflux esophagitis, mm -hmm. which can put them at a greater risk for aspiration. However, all the medications you can really use in pregnant women, it's a brief encounter. You're using most of the time one dose of this medication. I personally would use all the drugs in a pregnant woman, but technically propofol is classified as a pregnancy class B. So uh, that would probably even be my go-to drug in a pregnant woman. Good. That's actually really good to know. So 
nothing in the literature suggests or requires that the patient have to have continuous fetal monitoring during your procedure or something to that extreme if you're going to be doing something very brief. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Excellent. Yeah, it does not. Okay. And then our geriatric population for our elderly patients, anything specific we need to keep in mind for them? Systemic review for them, as essentially of over 10,000 patients revealed that the complication rate for the elderly was the same as the normal adult patients. But because they usually have higher ASA scores, you need to take a little bit more precaution with them, be a little bit more judicious with the medications, maybe give a smaller dose than you normally give a healthy 35-year-old male with a shoulder dislocation. And so that would be my advice on the elderly patients. Good. And actually, you mentioned the ASA score. The That last section for special populations was people with an ASA score over three or equal to or greater than three in this particular population, maybe being a little bit more judicious about which agent we use. Is that right? Yes. And honestly, there's not a lot of studies to show that there's a higher risk for patients with a higher ASA score in the emergency department for procedural sedation. However, depending on what they're there for. If they're hypotensive, you probably want to resuscitate them before you perform a procedural sedation. And you would like to use agents that don't cause hypotension like propofol. Instead, you'd use ketamine or atomidate. If you want to quick on, quick off for someone who's in ventricular tachycardia with a pulse and you want a cardiovertum, atomidate would be a great option for that. So you want to, you don't want to just use one agent for all these patients. You want to determine which agent would be best suited for them during this particular instance. Great. Okay. The last section in the article is controversies and cutting edge. And we are hearing more and more about dexmedetomidine in the ICU and maybe now also in the emergency department. Is there a role for this agent and maybe more basic than that, what is this agent and why should we care about it in the ED? Yeah, so occasionally dexmedetomidine pops up as an, as an agent. Someone will suggest using it for procedural sedation because it does have sedative and anxiolytic properties. Structurally, it's similar to clonidine. It's a highly selective alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. And believe it or not, it's actually been approved by the FDA for procedural sedation since 2008. So it's, it's been around for a while. It's been available going on 14 to 15 years. Some positives about it is that it has an onset of action about five to 10 minutes with a peak effect within 15 minutes. But there are some issues with it that we need to be aware of. Namely, it's very similar in administration to remifentanil in that it is approved for procedural sedation only if administered via a 10-minute loading infusion followed by a maintenance infusion. So this is going to be a limiting step for most providers. It does have minimal respiratory effects, but it has some very variable cardiovascular effects. In one study, there showed to be 58% of patients that either were hypotensive or hypertensive or suffered bradycardia from it. So I believe due to the unpredictability of adverse events, as well as the need for a loading infusion followed by maintenance infusion, it, it's a pretty difficult agent to, to use when we have so, so many other good agents out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that study was in children. It was, absolutely, yeah. There aren't any great okay. studies with procedural sedation of dexmedetomidine in adults. Okay. 
but good to know it's approved in children as well as adults. It is. Uh, and that the cardiovascular side effects and maybe the method of administration might limit its use, especially if we're looking for something quick and easy in the ED. There is, once again, an outstanding clinical pathway for going through all of the necessary steps when you're assessing your patient on uh, page 15 of the article. So again, if you have access, I definitely recommend you read the entire thing. And my favorite section, the five things that will change your practice. So one, we talked about pre-procedural fasting is not necessary. Second, capnography is still the best way to monitor respiratory depression and get that early sign that something's going wrong with your patient. Third, Technically, only one physician is needed for performing the sedation and procedure, so that's in the ASEP guidelines if you need something to help you fight that administrative battle. Fourth, the clinical situation and patient history should guide the individual selection of your medication, so we talked about the ASA class there. And fifth, Ketofol may be the best combination of medications for sedation in the emergency department and is Dr. Kern's go-to drug. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast today and to you and Dr. Gwyn for being the authors of this just outstanding textbook on procedural sedation. I love this article, and it's definitely going to stay as one of my favorites on the mobile app. I'm going to refer to it a lot. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to author it and to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for Thank having us. Thank you for us. having us. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. What an exhaustive review of procedural sedation and analgesia in the emergency department. Don't forget, this is all available to you in the mobile app and online at ebmedicine.net. And that Table 2 reference is available to you for free at foamed.ebmedicine.net. You can go look up all those doses and look at those advantages and disadvantages of each of those agents. And lastly, don't forget, 25% off all month long at ebmedicine.net. Until next time, I'm Sam Eshoo. Be safe, everyone.